Hey everyone, welcome to Educated and Expelled. I'm Haley, and this is a podcast about recovering women's histories. Let me preface this entire show by saying I know this is super late. I don't really know what I was thinking when I said I could get an episode out in a week and a half, but that was truly the devil talking, but here I am. I'm now a thousand percent certain I cannot do an episode in a week with my current school schedule, but two weeks is perfect for me, and hopefully for you. So with that, our next episode will air on March 7th, so not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after. And honestly, I can't believe that in two weeks, it's already going to be March. It's both invigorating and also concerning that finals are approaching us at a very steady rate. Our second episode is going to cover Wangari Mathai, an internationally celebrated environmental advocate and the first African woman to receive a Nobel Peace Prize. Wangari died in 2011, but videos of her speeches and interviews are shared widely across YouTube, PBS, and other informative platforms. She's not necessarily unknown, she's a widely celebrated and passionate individual, but I want to have a discussion about who we idolize as Westerners, specifically who we idolize as feminists. Because after researching Wangari, her story, and her environmental advocacy, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, why the hell is Wangari not on my feminist t-shirt? What is the process of idealization, and has our idealization gotten us anywhere in progressing a movement in the 21st century? Are we choosing the wrong people? I think that'll be an interesting discussion. Additionally, with the kind of political fake news that circulates around climate change, I'd like to identify first who are some of these politicians that are circulating this kind of news. And then I want to compare Wangari's advocacy with these kinds of politicians because not only was Wangari an environmental advocate, but she was also a political one. And then I'd like to talk about and bring some other opinions in on how women like Wangari should be written about in history. We know that typically those who write the textbooks are those that have systematic control over what is passed down through time. And right now, the men that are in charge currently think that climate change is some sort of conspiracy theory. What does that mean for women like Wangari Mathai? And we'll talk about this. Also, again, I'm still looking for someone who wants to work on this project with me. I think it's really important to have a multifaceted conversation, and I want to make sure this podcast contains a lot of opinions and voices. So again, please send me a Facebook message. Now let's move on to our subject today, Artemisia Chinaleski. I hope you all glance the WordPress blog for this podcast, because in my post regarding episode zero, I did include a trigger warning. Artemisia's story contains sexual assault narratives, and if you feel like you shouldn't listen to this episode, I completely understand. Please message me so I can give you some of my resources, you can skim over some of my notes, and look at her paintings if you'd like. Art historians have recovered a good portion of Artemisia's history, and she's been studied a lot over the past 30 years. Her work was in that survey art history course I took at UT Dallas, and there is a lot of scholarship written and being written about her. Now, I wanted to write this episode on her because I think this is going to be a good segue into some of the subjects I want to hit on later within this show. Because a lot of the reason why Artemisia is written about today concerns her sexual assault trial, or it's her defining feature. And upon reflection, this makes me feel kind of icky. It makes me feel like historians might be exploiting her in her career for a tragedy that society shamed her for at the time. 
And I'm not saying this feeling is necessarily academically logical, but it's kind of this gut feeling I have since we don't know what Artemisia was thinking about. In my opinion, the trial has been written about and talked about so much within the art history community, sometimes her art gets overlooked. I've been in the situation where I was having a discussion about Caravaggio's work, and then in a segue, mentioning Janileski's work, and the first thing somebody says or asks about is her sexual assault trial. However, we don't know what Artemisia would have wanted. All in all, we can speculate, but we should be respectful. Now, as you can imagine, over almost 406 years, information gets lost and conflated. You can hardly find accurate information on the trial on the internet, and within my own search, I found sources almost romanticizing the trial. It was frankly disgusting. So to stay clear of this, I brought Mary D. Gerard's textbook, Artemisia Janileski. Dr. Gerard is an art historian at American University and has written two books on Janileski herself, one other one about women in the Renaissance, and a bunch more on feminist art. She seems like a pretty chill lady if you want to check her out. She's also a highly credible source on some of the subjects we'll be discussing, and the textbook that I'm using for this episode has an Italian translation of the court documents from 1612, Artemisia's rape trial. Alright, I think that concludes my introduction, so let's get started. Artemisia Janileski was born the eldest child on July 8th, 1593, to Orazio Janileski and Prudentia Montone. Orazio was a pretty respectable artist during this time, and out of her three siblings, Artemisia was the only one to take after her father and developed an aptitude for painting. It's guessed that she began her apprenticeship during the years 1605 to 1610, making her an early teen when she began her formal training. By the time she was 19, Orazio publicly praised his daughter's artistic achievements. And he was right. Her father's claims were scarcely an exaggeration. Artemisia's earliest paintings display highly precocious art ability, and we'll talk about those in a bit. And also, whenever I say apprenticeship, it's not exactly straightforward. It wouldn't have been a formal artistic apprenticeship. She's not allowed the formal artistic education that other artists would receive because she's female. So her apprenticeship was under her father. As a girl that doesn't live in an aristocratic family, it's really unlikely that she had a general education at that. During the same year that her father began praising her to the Rome public, it said that she could not write and could barely read. However, over the course of her apprenticeship, Rome was transforming into an artistically vital city. Expansive churches began to appear all over the last quarter of the 16th century, and this kind of architectural explosion needed paintings and decoratives to fill the interior of the churches. The works in progress during Artemisia's apprenticeship are considered some of the most important pictorial compositions seen in Rome during the 1500s. This includes Caravaggio's frescoes and the paintings like The Calling of St. Matthew, the conversion of St. Paul, and the crucifixion of St. Peter. Caravaggio is a very important figure in this story. He was an active painter in Rome, Naples, and other cities within Italy, and he really defined the Baroque era of art. Now, what's the difference between Renaissance art and Baroque art? While both eras are known for its extensive realism and biblical content, the Renaissance can be described as stable and Baroque being dramatic. And dramatic is the best way to describe both Caravaggio and Artemisia's work. The Baroque era is considered to start around 1600 to about 1750. So Caravaggio's promotion of light and dark contrasts, hyperrealistic humanist states, 
during the late 1590s really set the standard for Baroque art to come. So while Artemisia is working on her apprenticeship, Caravaggio is painting the frescoes that we're studying about right now, and it's really likely that they knew each other, and I think that's pretty cool. Artemisia's first painting was Susanna and the Elders, finished in 1610 when she was 19 years old. It proudly presents the legacy that Orazio taught her during her apprenticeship. Orazio is known for his anatomical drawings, sophisticated use of light and dark contrast, and art historians have noted despite Janileski coming out of her apprenticeship, she was already looking at other artists to study. Artemisia's cool violets, mustard greens, and gray blues closely resemble the hues of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel frescoes. The image of Susanna sitting on hard stone while twisting her body back resembles Ignudi, a nude twisting man on stone in the Sistine ceiling. Additionally, the way that Susanna holds her hand up to two frankly disgusting old perverts called elders is similar to the expulsion scene of Adam and Eve in the Sistine Chapel. It's clear that Artemisia wasn't just into modeling, but she sought inspiration from female heroines within the Bible. It makes sense that Artemisia was looking at artists like Michelangelo because he was high-key obsessed with bodies, and because Michelangelo's great-nephew was actually a family friend and a great supporter of the Genileschi family. And a quick note, if you haven't checked out the blog already, I'm putting every single artwork that I'm discussing in a blog post so you can track the paintings with the episode. Now, during the summer of 1611, it's been about six years since Artemisia started her apprenticeship and one year after Susanna and the Elders was completed. She set out by carriage to visit three significant churches in Rome. Orazio was being employed at the Corino Palace, one of the churches that she was visiting, working indoors and also in the adjacent garden. She was exposed to some of the most innovative pictorial projects, as well as a group of highly experienced artists. And... Ignacio Tassi. A landscape artist and a marine artist, he was working in the Regal Hall of the Vatican during the time of her arrival. To put two and two together, he's also the man that sexually assaults Artemisia. Now, interestingly enough, Tassi and Orazio, who were considered friends, were working on a few projects together during that year. One of the more famous ones, and frankly one of the ones that hasn't been destroyed, is the fresco they completed together titled Apollo and the Muses, and due to the fact that this is on the vault of a palace, it's really hard to capture the full image. If you check the resources page, I found two separate images of Apollo and the Muses for your viewing. And among those images, where you can find various muses and musicians that are depicted, a portrait-like image resembles the young Artemisia Genileschi. Having her appear within this art piece could mean a number of things. Orazio and Tassi might have wanted to celebrate Artemisia's artistic debut, her first piece, Susanna and the Elders, was finished a year earlier, but it also could have easily been that she completed this as a self-portrait. During the Renaissance, a lot of popular artists with big commissions had large assembly workshops where the master would complete a synopia or an underdrawing, and the assistants would finish painting it. And there are quite a few figures within this piece that are given to Orazio's assistants, and she could have easily been one of them. Thinking about it from a modern art perspective, it's definitely a weird thing. We typically think of an artist as its sole creator, and of course when we get to the 1900s, this definitely becomes the case. The main framework for this piece, Apollo and the Muses, was created by Tassi, who had a great skill in architectural perspective. 
It's reported that Orazio asked Tassi to instruct Artemisia on perspective while she was visiting Rome, and such a lesson is believed to be the location for the eventual sexual assault that will be sent to a trial. To pull a quote from the trial section of her textbook, Dr. Gerard writes, to read the trial testimony is to descend into a genuinely depressing level of sexual and moral sordidness. And to be honest, it it's hard for me to even get through that one quote. It really is a true summary of what we're about to dive into. So again, in 1612, Artemisia's in Rome with her father, Tassi, and a bunch of other artists. And they're all working on pieces together, collaborating, finishing frescoes, and also teaching. And again, this is most likely the setting of the assault committed by Tassi on Artemisia. When word gets out about this, and Artemisia tells her father, Orazio was the one who brought suit against Tassi. And I have a lot of different feelings about this. First, I wish we knew more about Orazio and Ginaleski in between the time of the visit to Rome and the suit, because when I first started studying this, I was really happy that Artemisia's dad was behind her during the trial. This man was genuinely supportive of all of Artemisia's endeavors, at least artistically speaking. But then again, of course, because we don't have certain sentiments documented, we really have no idea if he was supportive at all. But in the same way, until only recently, a woman could come out alone and accuse a man of sexual assault. And we're talking 406 years later, maybe. And I could even play devil's advocate with myself on that one. So for Artemisia, without her dad there, she really wouldn't have gotten very far in a religious century that's obsessed with women's purity and virginity. And that entire discussion could be a podcast within itself. So, Orazio files a formal suit against Ignacio Tassi, and within the same document, Artemisia concurs with her father's claim that Tassi had raped her, and added that the sexual relations continued beyond that because she was assured by Tassi himself that they would be married. Ignacio was already a sketchy guy as it is, but it's rumored that he was actually planning to kill his current wife at the time. Tassi's wife did indeed pass away while he was in Rome working with Orazio, and this sequence of events is discussed heavily within the trial itself. Additionally, if that fact alone doesn't leave you skeptical of Tassi, his sister-in-law, Constanza, was at the trial, testifying for Artemisia, as she has also accused Tassi of sexual assault. Within the court documents, Artemisia gives a very detailed account as to how he proposed to her and then proceeds to abuse her. Artemisia got loose, she grabbed a table drawer knife, and by her own account she said, I'd like to kill you with this knife because you have dishonored me. To which he replied, Give me your hand and I'll promise to marry you once I get out of this labyrinth that I'm in. Presumably talking about killing his wife, to which Artemisia was comforted by. She had no idea about the planned murder. She couldn't read the letters he received due to her poor education, and she had no idea about his wife. As Catholic as she was, she probably thought this proposal was her saving grace, that she would be marrying the person who, in using the translated term, disflowered her. And unfortunately, the abuse continued because of his sadistic convincing. It's really difficult to imagine the feelings that Artemisia had because Italy during this time throughout the Renaissance and before, is deeply rooted in religion. In fact, this case is being heard by Pope Paul IV, and even after Artemisia gives this really powerful testimony against Tassi, what it comes down to is her virginity. She's taken off the stands by midwives, 
brought into the next room for a physical, and then brought immediately back into the courtroom so the midwives could announce that she was no longer a virgin. Tassie then took Stan for five interrogations. He argued that he had no stake in his wife's death, that he only found out about it once he got to Rome. But going through the court documents, it does seem like there's some sort of consensus that he definitely planned his wife's death. Tassie then goes on and accuses Orazio of being the one that raped Artemisia and how he, Tassie, was trying to simply negotiate a marriage between Artemisia and another painter on his father's behalf, but that never could have happened because of her, quote, bad reputation. And that was just the first part of the trial. The second part of the trial, when Tassie's witnesses took stand, Artemisia was treated as one would expect with this kind of man as her abuser. Niccolo Bedino, who was one of the artists in Rome during this time, accused Artemisia of being a woman of loose morals, and that plenty of other men have deflowered her before Tassie. Six other witnesses concurred with Bedino's statements. As I've mentioned before, we only have the documents that we do to shape Artemisia's history. The records preserved regarding this trial contain no resolution. Tassie could have been convicted, but not sentenced. But by one account, Tassie was released after spending about nine months in prison. And let's be frank here, this man is utter scum. A liar, most likely a murderer, and a rapist. And yet Artemisia was treated under an insane amount of scrutiny. During the trial, she was examined in a room by midwives, while Tassie was merely admonished to tell the truth. Tassie may have spent however many months in prison, if any, all while Artemisia faces the social backlash of those testimonies given by artists that were her peers in Rome. It's hard to imagine how a citizen on the street would view this trial. Italy lacked separation of church and state, and its citizens had a poor education. I mean, in regards to sexual assault in the 21st century, it's obvious that women still face backlash for their statements regarding a man in power. We place an unrealistically high burden on women to prove that something damaging happened to them. We think, oh, I'm sure she's lying to get attention. Or, hey, I know that guy, and there's no way that he could ever do something like that. So I could only imagine what these deeply religious individuals thought of Artemisia when the midwives came back into the room and told everyone she'd been deflowered. Now, it's really hard to get through all of that and only talk about one painting. However, again, she's only 19 and she only has done Susanna and the Elders. I don't want this conversation to be rooted in the idea that Artemisia is defined by this trial. But if there's any consolation, Tassie is most definitely defined by this trial. If you Google his name, the sidebar wiki link that shows up on Google refers to him as the rapist of Artemisia Genileschi. And although this man most likely didn't receive the punishment he deserved in 1612, it seems as if the past is truly haunting him now. In November of the same year, Artemisia was married to a Florence artist, Pietro Antonio Staiezzi. By March 1615, she was actually quite well known in Florence, which is pretty remarkable given that women during these artistic eras were met with stiffness from the academy. She was commissioned to do a piece for Casa Buonarroti, Again, this is odd for the time period. She's being commissioned to do pieces, has been accepted into the quite traditional academy, and it's believed that she was supported by the Medici family. Now, if you're completely out of touch with Italian history, the Medici house was a political dynasty. 
They were an incredibly rich banking family. They produced four popes, and their blood runs rampant in royalty, including the late Princess Diana. We're unsure as to how Artemisia and the Medici family were connected through the Grand Duke Cosimo II, but the Medici patronage really carried art in Florence during this time. And it only makes sense that during this time period, a woman like Artemisia could rise to such fame, again, for being a woman artist without noble blood, because the Medici really liked her. Fun fact that Cosimo's character actually funded Galileo, who discovered the moons of Jupiter in 1610. Galileo, in fact, named these moons the Medician planets. And I think it's really interesting that all of these names and dates like suddenly overlap. We study so many artists individually, but in actuality, they could have been really good friends with one another. Anyways, Artemisia painted her first Judith in Judith and Her Maidservant. On the website, I'm calling this one Judith and Her Maidservant Pity because Artemisia had the habit of remaking scenes, as we'll see in just a moment. She also paints her first Magdalene, and this piece is important for two reasons. At this point, she's definitely ceased to have her father as an influence. She is cited as the person that brings Caravaggism into Florence, and the light and dark contrasts and utter drama are definitely present in this Magdalene. The second reason is, Artemisia is now pursuing naturalism and nudity, and because of her recent fame in the Florence area, she's considered to be a specialist in the nude form. Artemisia had access to female models that male artists didn't, and it gave her a competitive edge. This is shown in the Magdalene and the piece she completes for the Casa Buonarroti. Now, let's fast forward to the end of her Florence residency, to the most dramatic Judith painting, Judith slaying Holofernes. Now, there are two versions of this painting, the Uffizi version and the Naples version. Both are on the site for viewing. Artemisia gets another commission by our dude, Grand Duke Cosimo II, and promises him the painting in six months. Five days later, she puts up some of her home goods as collateral to buy the expensive ultramarine blue for this incredibly passionate painting. Now, this is really the Renaissance Kill Bill moment we've all been waiting for. For those of you that do not know the biblical story, it goes like this. Holofernes, an Assyrian general, is sent on an order basically to kill his enemies, the Jewish people. This particular Jewish population and our heroine, Judith, resides in Bethlehem, and their city is under attack. Judith, of course, being strikingly gorgeous and also a widow, hears the plans of her city surrendering to the Assyrians and decides to seduce Holofernes. She creeps into his camp, gets him drunk, and then waits to cut off his head. Now, I want to focus on Artemisia and her depictions of Judith specifically for this episode. Artemisia also depicts Cleopatra, Lucretia, and as we already know, Susanna. But Artemisia painted Judith at least five times, and we know almost for certain that the theme of Judith's story really resonated with Artemisia. Out of all of the women that Artemisia painted, Judith's story was the most positive and active, and it could be that Artemisia depicted the story so many times for self-identification. And it's also impossible to ignore the similarities between Judith's story and our artists. Some art historians cite the executioner heroine's painted face as a self-portrait. You can go look at her later self-portrait that I posted on the blog and form an opinion yourself. And it's also impossible to ignore the imagery of the bedroom. 
Artemisia's testimony during the rape trial describes her holding up a knife to Tassie after the assault, nicking him, and blood flowing onto the bed. And Artemisia is definitely not light on the blood in the Judith depictions. Please, go look at the image. This woman is incredibly talented. Not only is there an unsightly amount of blood on the bed, but you can see dried blood on the sheets, and it's frankly stunning. But back to my point, other art historians like Mary Garrard note that we cannot oversimplify and interpret her Judith purely as fantasy revenge. Artists like Titian, Michelangelo, and Caravaggio frequently placed themselves in the pieces that they were creating, and for Artemisia, it could have been a similar move. But it's a remarkably fine line. In my opinion, it comes down to this. Artemisia appears to have drawn self-identification and self-courage from her heroine Judith. But the thing that we really need to be talking about is that Artemisia's work goes farther and deeper than any artist, female or not, before the 20th century, especially considering she depicts a woman's point of view. In early depictions of Judith's scenes, they were more narrative, especially in the Renaissance era. Again, think of the Renaissance as stable. Moving into the Baroque era, we get more epic narrative or a focus on a prominent event, and I attached Botticelli's Judith Returning to Bethlehem on the blog for reference. And yeah, when we enter the Baroque era, in typical Caravaggio fashion, he changes up the game. Painted in 1598, Caravaggio really pushes what we know as the Baroque era. Again, think dramatic. There is a visible human conflict in his depiction of Judith and Holofernes. There are light and dark contrasts that promote a humanistic state, and it almost feels eerie to be in the private quarters of Holofernes because the work is so intimate and, of course, bloody. But here's the thing. Artemisia's Judith shakes me to my core. It's the kind of violence that makes us open our eyes a millimeter more just to comprehend such a passionate piece. It might offend people, but it shocks, shakes, and offends people because it's never been done before. It depicts a violent, unforeseeable act, murder, sin, whatever, committed by a woman upon a man, created by a woman who, by society's standards, isn't supposed to be there. She's supposed to be a mother or the aide to her artistic husband. And yet, here we have Artemisia beautifully depicting Judith tearing this man apart. And they're definitely not committing this act in the name of femininity. Judith symbolizes female defiance against a male power. Artemisia was supporting it in 1612, and here we are in 2018 supporting the same damn thing. In 1630, she moves to Naples, and her moves are pretty documented from here on out. After she makes the move to southern Italy, with the exception of a couple of years in London, she stays there for the rest of her life. In her 1630 letters, we can make the assumption that she's long separated from her husband. She also states in those letters that she never really liked Naples, and yet she stays there until she dies. This was due to the high cost of living, but it was a city for artistic commission, so she stayed. She painted her well-known self-portrait as the allegory of painting. She was also commissioned to do an Annunciation piece for the Genoese church. Her father, Orazio, previously did an Annunciation, and art historians have said that the two artistic depictions do look quite similar. But it also makes sense for Artemisia to create an image like the one she knows back home. However, there's one fatal flaw in trying to set up this painting for critiques. It's not your typical Artemisia. And yet, it is. 
The Virgin is not her usual choice for biblical heroine, and in Artemisia's depiction of the Virgin, she's exactly as you'd picture her if any other artist did her. Qualities of purity, humility, and most important, she's very feminine. Her eyelids are lowered and she's damn sumptuous. But Gabriel, the angel, isn't giving any energy. He's practically eliminating the tension between the two characters, which is seen in plenty of other previous enunciations, like Orazio's. Dr. Gerard concludes that Artemisia might have thought it was inappropriate to make the Virgin assertive and probably didn't want Mary to be dominated by Gabriel anyway, despite the fact that he's the messenger of God. You can take that however you'd like, but it shows that Artemisia is really resistant to tradition. Although she's Catholic and has been raised in Italy, I think that she understands some of the Bible's misogynistic and maybe even homophobic tendencies. As I mentioned before, she does make a short trip to England. While on her way there, she sent a message to her patron in Moderna, basically saying she'd rather keep working for him than the king or queen in England. But again, this is a short trip. Her host practically kicked her out because of the political crises that were happening. Civil war was practically dominating the rest of that decade, which ended the establishment of the Commonwealth and the beheading of Charles I in 1649. She completes quite a few more paintings between 1642 and her death in 1653, but I want to focus on David and Bathsheba and the law and his daughters. These last two paintings define how she's written about in history. Her depiction of Lot and his daughters was assigned to another Baroque artist, Bernardo Cavallino. Anybody can see now, after reviewing Artemisia's paintings, that the figures in Lot and his daughters are typical Genileschi women. The poses are a bit more stylistic, and the drapery is a little bit more full, but it's clear looking at her art now that the creator was Genileschi. But we have to remember that although we have scholarship on Artemisia now, her history was lost for a good portion of time. Art historians like Mary Gerard took notice of her history around 1970. It's really painful to think a woman of this magnitude and power in the 17th century could be lost for over 300 years. Her information definitely didn't disappear, and up to the second wave of feminism, we were kind of completely fine with misassigning her art pieces to people like Cavallino. And Really no offense to him, but he lived a relatively short life, and his works are pretty picturesque to the Baroque movement. Really not that special. It's actually pretty interesting. Cavallino was born about four years after Artemisia's trial in 1612, and was primarily active in Naples, where Artemisia lived a good portion of her years. We have documents now to suggest that he was definitely under Artemisia's artistic spell. She was definitely one of his major influences. And it makes sense. She was a big deal during this time. She had the ego to say she didn't want to paint for the king or queen of England. Nailing down the exact reasons as to why a woman is lost in history is a really difficult challenge, and we'll face it a lot. But we can make a few guesses about Artemisia. I think a part could be blamed on our historians. There are definitely sexist ones. In fact, there were plenty of Artemisia's pieces that were originally assigned to her father, Orazio. I can't figure out the minds exactly of art historians at this moment, but it seems like they woke up one day and realized, okay, there's no way that Orazio was this talented. I mean, Artemisia practically developed her own form of Caravaggism. Now, Artemisia died in Naples in 1653. 
Her artwork did gradually become more graceful and feminine. This could be cited as a society shift, as in that's what art commissioners wanted and would pay for, and that definitely plays a part. But it could also be cited as more of a transformation within herself, embracing what it typically means to be a woman, and painting what more women artists typically depicted. I know I just cited sexist historians as for a reason why Artemisia's history might have been lost, but there's also a sexist society. Two epitaphs were published in Venice in 1653, and it's our sole confirmation of Genelleschi's death. These words are shockingly irreverent and frankly insulting. They state, By painting one likeness after another, I earned no end merit in the world. While to carve two horns upon my husband's head, I put down the brush and took the chisel instead. Heart sees gentle woo-men, was I to anyone, who was able to see me in an unseeing world. But now that hid beneath these marble slabs I lie, allure turns to bait, and gently worm-eaten am I. I'm sure you can picture my seething anger whenever I read this. Whoever these assholes were, of course they defined her exclusively in sexual terms, her husband as a cuckold, and they shrinked her remarkable artistic life to a mean-spirited misogynistic rant. I know we can't define the exact moments or features where we lose a woman in history, but it most definitely concerns a society that is rooted in sexism and practicing misogyny. The men that wrote these epitaphs were probably less successful than Artemisia and fueled by a gendered jealousy. My goal with this show is to make sure that those men in that kind of society does not have control over women's histories. Gentileschi's paintings convey courageous feminine heroes, and they do not only define moments in Artemisia's life, but it provides historical context for the evolution of feminism, inspiration for artists regardless of gender, and inspiration for people like us, who are interested in shaking up modern-day status quos. And that's all from me, y'all. Thanks for listening. See you guys on March 7th.